0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Bernie Sanders won Colorado's Democratic caucus last night over Hillary Clinton. Republicans caucus too, but didn't hold an official presidential straw poll here. As for the Democrats, many waited in long lines to participate in the very low-tech process. At one site in El Paso County, Sanders supporters were asked to go to one table, Clinton supporters to another. They did a head count and then, to be sure it was right, asked people to count themselves off. One, two, three. Speak up. Four. four. We're starting with me? No, four. you're number four. I'm four. Okay, five. Six, seven. That was recorded by a reporter at the Colorado Springs Gazette. Hear from our reporters at the caucuses at cprnews.org. Right now, Ryan Warner talks with former NPR political editor Ken Rudin, host of the Political Junkie podcast. He put Sanders' Colorado win into national context.
1: Well, if anything, it keeps Bernie Sanders alive. I mean, uh, if you looked at the, the map, if you looked at the demographics at stake on Tuesday, it seems like most of the contests, most of the primaries were in the South where in many states is an overwhelming African-American population and black voters have shown in the past, as we saw in South Carolina, that black voters are very attracted to Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders knew that. And that's why Colorado and many of the more, shall we say, populist slash liberal slash white states were the keys to his coming away with any kind of victory on Super Tuesday.
2: And so Colorado helps him make the case that Hillary Clinton is not the inevitable winner
1: that's the case he would like to make. If you looked at the headlines, you can see clearly that Hillary Clinton was the big winner. I mean, she won seven states. She also won Massachusetts, which was a state that Bernie Sanders was clearly counting on. The Clintons, of course, have not historically done well in Colorado. I mean, Bill Clinton, the likely nominee in 1992, lost to Jerry Brown in the caucuses. Actually, it was the primary in 1992. Barack Obama clobbered Hillary Clinton in the Democratic caucuses. I think it was something like 67 to 32. But it's also a state that from the beginning, Bernie Sanders, looking at the map on Super Tuesday, seeing what states were at stake, knew that he had to win Colorado to keep his hopes alive.
2: And the story has been that Bernie Sanders has the support of young white voters Again, that Clinton does well with older voters, African-Americans, and especially important in Colorado, Latinos, who are about 21 percent of the population here. I'll note that she won in Pueblo County, for example, uh, which has a, a big Latino population. Any surprises when you look at Colorado's results, Ken?
1: Well, not really. I mean, obviously, uh, he was hoping, Bernie Sanders was hoping to do well with Latino voters, but that seems to be Hillary Clinton's stronghold. We saw that in Nevada when she picked up a a sizable number of Hispanic votes. The saving grace for Bernie Sanders is that Super Tuesday has come and gone, and now he's going to have to make his case. If his case is about economic populism and economic uh, income inequality, well, he's going to come to the the Midwest with Michigan, with Illinois, uh, with Missouri, with Ohio. Uh, That's coming up in the next couple of weeks, he has to make uh, an economic case against Hillary Clinton in those states. Now, Bernie Sanders said Tuesday night and his staff said Tuesday night that we're in it all the way to the convention. They always say that. Candidates do say that. They have to say that. But if he cannot break through with with victories in the industrial Midwest, then it's going to be a very tough case for him to make if he's going to win the nomination.
2: Now, we haven't even mentioned the superdelegates. This is an invention of the Democratic Party, and two-thirds of them, we should say, in Colorado are already committed to Hillary Clinton.
1: This, drive, can I just this drives the Bernie Sanders campaign nuts. And a, a brief history here. George McGovern knocked out all the senior citizens in the Democratic Party, all the older leaders when he won the nomination in 1972. He wound up losing 49 states. And then the grown-ups in the Democratic Party said, OK, we need these superdelegates super to take back our party to make sure that people with a vested interest in the party win. So, I mean, what happened in New Hampshire, for example, Bernie Sanders won 60 percent of the vote in New Hampshire to Hillary Clinton's 38 percent. And you would think he would walk away with the the most delegates, but they left tied because of the super delegates. It just drives the Bernie Sanders people nuts.
2: Now, turnout has been low overall for Democratic contests uh, up till now, as opposed to turnout for Republican primaries across the country. Uh, yet in Colorado, some Democrats waited for hours to be able to caucus, long past when many of the precincts were supposed to be closed. Uh, We heard from the chair of the Boulder County Democrats that they had prepared for high numbers, quote, but nothing like what we got. CPR's Jenny Brundin observed caucuses at East High School in Denver.
3: Each classroom you went in was filled with, I would say, between 150 to 200 people, shoulder to shoulder, standing on desks, there was literally no room to sit down. And they opened up windows because it was getting really stuffy and people weren't able to breathe. They were telling me that they had never seen this many people turn out in a caucus.
2: The head of the Colorado Democrats tweeted last night that the party surpassed its 08 caucus attendance. I just want to point out an interesting storyline in Baca County in the southeast corner of the state, 47 people caucused in the Democratic uh, event there. And the winner was not Sanders nor Clinton, but uncommitted uh, and, and to the Republicans then. As we said, party leaders here decided not to hold an official straw poll, but... Voters could not resist talking about the presidential candidates anyway. And at one caucus site, not a large one, a church in Englewood, they took a poll anyway. Marco Rubio won there, we should say. But frontrunner Donald Trump was the biggest topic of conversation.
4: He's not presidential material. He's a dangerous man. I just like his guts. I like his oomph. I just like it. I just like that.
1: He's a buffoon. Whether you love Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump, and many Republicans feel both, uh, you can't help but talk about him. But did anybody think that he would be in this position today? I can't think anybody did. And the fact that now the Republican establishment, or whatever is left of the Republican establishment, is now talking about a stop Trump movement, that ship has sailed, shall we say, because right now he is the clear front runner, and of course, starting March 15th, The Republicans' uh, contests are winner-take-all. He seems like, if anything, the the upcoming primaries will make him even stronger than he is today. And right now, he is very strong.
2: Well, once the general election campaigns are set, Colorado will see a lot of the major party candidates as a swing state. And there's a U.S. Senate race here. Democrat Michael Bennett running for re-election. The Republicans have several candidates that will likely be narrowed down before the primary in June. How important is that race to national politics?
1: Oh, my goodness. That Senate race in Colorado is crucial. Only two. Harry Reid's seat in Nevada that he's giving up and Michael Bennett's seat in Colorado that he's defending. Those are critical for the Democrats if they're going to take back the Senate. Of course, there are a lot of Republicans who are nervous that Donald Trump leading the ticket could make many Republican incumbents in jeopardy. I I assume that many establishment Republicans would, would rather sit home or vote for almost anyone else than Donald Trump. But having said that, he has surprised us all along. For all we know, he could cause an increase in voter support. I mean, there's no way to predict what's going to happen. But right now, there's a lot of uh, nervousness on the Republican side, especially their hopes of holding on to the Senate.
0: Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Ryan, thank you so much for having me.
0: Ken Rudin is the former political editor at NPR and now hosts the Political Junkie podcast. He spoke to Ryan Warner. Find a link at CPRnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. In most cases, police officers should not have to let people know they're being recorded on a body-worn camera. That's one in a list of recommendations Colorado lawmakers now have from a group of law enforcement, public defenders, open records advocates, and others. Colorado lawmakers ask them for guidance because as more police departments in the state get body cameras, Colorado still has few laws governing how they're used, compared with other states. Colorado's head of public safety, Stan Hilke, chaired the group, and he joins us now. Welcome.
5: Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: let's talk about that recommendation to not require notifying people they're being recorded. Why not?
5: Well, I think the uh, there are other states that have a sort of a two-party consent r- rule or law, and Colorado is a one-party consent law. So it's sort of consistent with Colorado law. If one party knows they're being recorded, there's no consent required. Um, however, uh, given that, there there is a complete desire to have transparency if anybody asks that an officer disclose that they are recording.
0: So it's not required by law, but body cameras have proliferated across the country, including in Colorado, as a way to build trust and transparency, largely in response to the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and and subsequent incidents where mostly black unarmed men have been killed by police. Denver's policy on using body cameras encourages officers to tell the public they're recording in most circumstances. Do you think by uh, not notifying people they're being recorded, it undermines the effort to build trust?
5: Well, I think that that would be one argument for, uh, you know, making that notification. Another argument against it is that it may have a chilling effect on people's willingness to talk to the police officers. So there's, you know, throughout this study and throughout uh, considering border camera use, you know, there's there's pros and cons to each.
0: Now, why would it, would it encourage people not to be open with the police officers if they know they're being recorded?
5: Uh, well, I think that there's probably plenty of examples where people uh, may be reluctant to talk if they know that they're uh, they're being recorded. Um, certainly, we know that there are times when people are traumatized through events and they don't want that trauma, you know, to be recorded forever. Um, th- that would that would be an example.
0: All the major front range cities have body cameras now, including Denver, or will in the next uh, few months. Altogether, more than a quarter of the state's police departments have them. I want to look closely at the other recommendations from your group. Uh, they focus on when the cameras should be turned on and off. And the group recommends officers manually turn them on at the start of an encounter that's related to an investigation. Why not keep the cameras on all the time or, or even have them automatically turn on instead of the officer initiating that process? Well,
5: most of that is out of practicality. The The amount of data that it that will be required if you turn it on at the beginning of the shift and turn it off at the end of the shift is is staggering. Uh, you know, one local police department did a, a study on that and figured that it would take at least a terabyte of data storage every two weeks, and that's a you know smaller department. So there is there is some logistical and practical um, implications of that. And I think also uh, even the ACLU who initially. Uh, made a recommendation that all cameras should be turned on at the beginning and the, at the end of the shift, relaxed a little bit, understanding that there are times when they, sh- when they may not need to be turned on or that they could be turned off um, to try to protect the privacy of individuals that might be crime victims or during uh, places where there's a medical setting or within schools. So you know, there's there's both a privacy issue and a, a practical issue with the amount of data that would be required to have it turned on that
0: often. And your group does recommend that cameras be turned off when interacting with victims or witnesses who want to be confidential or, or confidential informants. Are those conditions important to make sure witnesses come forward, for example, and victims feel they can tell their stories when those cameras are not on?
5: Yeah, we, we believe they are important, uh, and that's why there are some guidelines about when they should be turned off, when, when consent is required, when, when notification should be required. And, you know, we had victims representatives on our committee that, uh, that, that advocated for that with regards to the ability of victims to not have this secondary trauma, um, you know, from, from being recorded when they didn't want to be
1: recorded.
0: Ultimately, though, an, an officer would have discretion to decide whether to record or not, according to two members of the study group we spoke with, uh, Lone Tree Police Chief Jeff Streeter and Victims Advocate Sterling Harris. um, I wonder then, when the law enforcement benefit of recording a conversation would be more important than protecting a witness, uh, for example. Help me understand that scenario.
5: Well, you know, this is one of the challenges, I think, when we're doing these recommendations, is you can't think ahead of every type of event. Mm -hmm. The group recognized that officers are placed in very complex critical uh, situations where critical thinking is necessary and did not want to box them in. But there are times that the group thought of that where a recording may need to be kept on. Uh, If a victim is is, uh, so traumatized that they're unable to tell that story later or they felt like, you know, there was a need to record it, despite it being one of those kinds of situations where it would normally be recommended to be turned off. We we just wanted to make sure that we recognize that police officers are critical thinkers and they have that ability if needed. But also this policy gives them those guardrails. You know, it's very clear that uh, we want to respect crime victims or respect people who wish to report anonymous information and cooperate with police. Or... You know, those kinds of, of, of events, uh, we, we needed to make sure that we didn't write a completely, um, you know, restrictive policy.
0: I see. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to Stan Hilke. He's Colorado's head of public safety. We're speaking about body cameras and recommendations from a group that he chaired. Uh, The last recommendation deals with one of the biggest concerns we heard from community members when we reported on body cameras last summer. What to do when officers don't comply with a body camera policy or a department doesn't set a policy for using them. This group recommends leaving it up to each department, local control uh, essentially, and that the department could choose to use civil or criminal penalties or some sort of internal discipline. We talked with Lone Tree Police Chief Jeff Streeter, who was a member of the study group. This is a mutual trust thing. I mean, I I need the public to trust in the fact that I, as a chief, am going to hold my officers accountable to this policy. And that's kind of where we left it. Agencies kind of have that control to hold their folks accountable. He added that the Lone Tree uh, Police Department has has had body cameras since late 2013. He hasn't had to reprimand an officer for failing to use the cameras appropriately. Was there unanimous support for this among your study group to leave it up to individual departments to set penalties?
5: Yeah, in fact, all of our recommendations were uh, either unanimous or nearly unanimous uh, at the end. And and this this particular uh, piece was... Was uh, I think we we heard also the same thing that you talked about. There, you know, people were concerned that there was going to be misuse or failure to comply with the policy. And there's a couple of different remedies for that. And I think that was really trying to answer that question. the The evidence may not be admissible in court. Um, the there is actually the opportunity, uh, you know, to to have a criminal charge of official misconduct for failing to. Or violation of any statute or lawfully adopted rule or regulation in respect to the office. Those are those are some opportunities for uh, legal remedies should that happen. The other thing is is that just like Chief Streeter talked about, you know, most agencies have this internal administrative component that they can hold officers accountable, and and you know that, that piece is part of that trust as well.
0: And yet, as I said anecdotally, this was the most common concern we heard from police watchdogs in the public last summer, that officers wouldn't use body cameras appropriately. Here's Christy Martinez, who sits on the Human Relations Commission in Pueblo.
4: The only problem with body cams would be things where humans are involved, which is having the discretion to turn it on or not turn it on. And then the other issue is, you know, we're just starting to see how would a citizen gain access to those. Are those things that would be made available?
0: Why not get more specific if if there could be some benefit in terms of broad public trust to say the state has a law detailing what happens when officers don't turn their cameras on appropriately?
5: Well, I think certainly that would be um, a new law and up to the legislature to to contemplate for
0: sure. So, and I want to get to Christy's second point. Uh, There there are a lot of questions about body cameras that this group did not address. You focused on a narrow list of questions that lawmakers put in the law last year. I want to ask you about one of the other questions lawmakers have also brought up. When the public should have access to body camera recordings. As the top public safety officer in Colorado, what do you think, uh, when do you think, rather, they should be made publicly available?
5: Well, that was a that was a big uh, part of our, our discussions and a pretty robust debate within the group. And uh, you know, we had uh, people, uh, freedom of information advocates, on the group, and that's why we had them there. We wanted mm. to hear that piece. You know, this is an area of law that is currently developing, and, and certainly there's some case law in Colorado about it. But you know, there's there's sort of both sides of the spectrum, it should be released immediately upon it being recorded or being asked for. Right. And the other side, and certain, certainly where the case law has sort of uh, been at so far, is that if it's an ongoing investigation or an ongoing criminal case, um, it's, it's withheld until that is that matter is resolved we 've seen that here in Colorado with respect to some of the events that have been in the news where uh, we you know a video is known to exist but not released because of that pending investigation or or pending a criminal charge. Uh, what we also see is that once that matter is resolved there's a decision whether a charge occurs or the investigation is complete, then the video gets released so I think this is a this is an area that's developing, and, and uh, we will see, I have no doubt, in the, in the future, probably further case law that will develop, you know, what the right guidelines are for that and when.
0: I want to move outside of the specific recommendations, uh, finally. The report lists a bunch of advantages and drawbacks of having body cameras in a police department, and I'm curious where you stand on their use generally. Do you think they're undoubtedly a net positive or a net negative for public safety?
5: Well, I, you know, I, this, is a, this is a piece of a question, I think, that is really in, dependent on the community. Um, for communities that are currently engaged in uh, a lot of conversations about mistrust of the police and, and those kinds of things, this might be a great tool, particularly if it's developed with and in partnership with that community. Um, there are other places, perhaps in the state, or that's not as big of an issue, and it may not be as necessary. So it's it's topical to geography and to the current events of a community. Uh, you know, for instance, it, it, there's also this piece of practicality in the in the program cost. It's it's an expensive endeavor. the The initial procurement of body cameras itself may not be that painful, even though they can be expensive, anywhere from two to twelve hundred dollars a piece. But it's the ongoing maintenance of all the storage, the FTE that it takes to make sure that that is done right, and the training that really starts to add up. So there's a, there's, there's a significant uh, component to this just about whether or not an agency has the capacity to n- implement a program like that.
0: And Stan, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Stan Hillkey is executive director of the Colorado Department of Public Safety. Find much more of our reporting on body cameras, including a map where they're used in Colorado at CPRnews.org. Still to come, the Colorado Rockies are the first team affected by baseball's new domestic violence policy. The policy is yet another sign professional sports teams are getting tough on the issue. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Colorado Rockies are the first team to face baseball's new domestic violence policy. Last week, Commissioner Rob Manford placed Rockies shortstop Jose Reyes on leave until courts in Hawaii address a charge that he assaulted his wife. That means the Rockies' highest paid player will miss spring training and possibly some of the regular season. Reporter Kylie Crow has covered baseball and domestic violence for Think Progress, which describes itself as a nonpartisan but progressive news site. Welcome to the program.
4: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: So, Jose Reyes, the player the Rockies got in exchange for Troy Tulowitzki in a surprise trade last year, uh, was once a star, but his skills have diminished with age. As we mentioned, he faces a domestic abuse charge in Hawaii. What, what exactly is he accused of?
4: So, uh, Reyes was arrested on October 31st in Hawaii. He was on vacation there with his family. Um, and according to what his wife told police, uh, they got into an argument that turned physical He grabbed her by the throat, uh, shoved her into a sliding glass door. Um, She told them she sustained numerous injuries uh, to multiple parts of the body, and she was taken to the hospital to be treated um, while Reyes was arrested.
0: And sports leagues have, have had to pay much closer attention to these issues since a video showed the NFL Ravens linebacker Ray Rice uh, knock out his wife in an elevator, and, and the NFL has since struggled to land on a proper punishment. How did Major League Baseball react to that incident?
4: Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, about a year ago, when I first spoke with uh, Major League Baseball and with the union, They admitted to me that they really hadn't been on top of this issue until the Ray Rice incident hit the NFL, and they realized they just weren't prepared to handle something similar. Um, And that's not to say that players, baseball players in the past hadn't been accused or charged um, of domestic violence and sexual assault. They certainly had, but the league really tended to look the other way. Um, So a big, you know, a big distinction between baseball and football is that baseball decided to be proactive and really get out in front of it and get their own house in order. So they established a policy that that addresses domestic violence, sexual assault and child abuse. And it's fairly comprehensive. It's not only addressing the punishment of players who are accused or convicted of such crimes. it, It also has an education and prevention component, which is really important. Um, So that policy was finalized in August. And another important distinction between the NFL and Major League Baseball is that the policy was collectively bargained with the union. So a key snag for football is that in the players who have faced domestic violence and sexual assault charges um, or allegations since Ray Rice and the league has attempted to come in and and institute its own punishment – those have been appealed by the players, and it's um, been a long process where it's litigated out in the appeals process, and the punishments have all been reduced. Um, so a big, a big key component, and I think a very positive step with baseball is that they got on the same page with the union beforehand, and everyone agreed to the what's in the policy, and that should hopefully prevent you know some of those snags that football has faced um, moving forward.
0: So, with that said, is the is the policy that that Major League Baseball has harsher than the policy of the NFLs?
4: It's you know, it's not necessarily harsher. Uh-huh. Um, baseball's policy leaves basically everything up to the discretion of the commissioner, Rob Manfred. Um, so, there's no maximum punishment, no minimum punishment. There's um, no real timeline for the league to arrive at a punishment. So that piece of it um, really puts everything in the commissioner's hands. And that's similar to the NFL. Um, much of that discipline is left in Roger Goodell's hands. Um, but as I said, because the union wasn't on board with him getting that much power, then they've been able to appeal um, the punishments that have come down. So with baseball and the union being on board, they're still in the baseball policy. There's an arbitration process um, where players can appeal any punishment and take that to an arbitration panel. Um, So there's there's that avenue for players as well. It's not like when a punishment comes down, then that's the final word.
0: And and you mentioned a little bit of some of what the policy covers. Can you go through a bit more of what of what is in this this uh, domestic violence policy?
4: Sure. So the um, the education component requires every player, um, minor league, major league and every employee. So all the coaches, front offices to go through mandatory domestic violence training. Um, and last year during spring training was the first time that they did that, and um, MLB brought in a very reputable domestic violence organization called Futures Without Violence to help them uh, create that curriculum and decide you know what what the players should be taught and what other um, sort of services they should have in place. So in addition to the training, they have a 24-hour hotline that's completely confidential, staffed by experts that players can use um, when they feel they need help on anything related to domestic violence, sexual assault, or child abuse, which is also a really important um, component. And then uh, in the, the punishment piece, as I said, there are no real guidelines as to what the punishment should be. Um, it gives the commissioner the ability to put a player on paid leave for seven days but there's also a, another provision, which is what was used in the case of Reyes, where if the player is going through the legal process and the commissioner doesn't feel prepared to put down the punishment, then he can put the player on paid leave through the extent of the legal proceedings. I see. Um, so that's what happened with Reyes here is that it was deemed an exceptional circumstance where having the player play would cause irreparable damage to the team or the league. And so he's on leave until uh, his trial, which is actually scheduled for the same day as opening day
0: we're talking to journalist Kylie crow. she's covered the major league baseball's new policy on domestic abuse, and it's an effect on rocky shortstop Jose Reyes for Think Progress, uh, which is a progressive news site. I-, I have to ask, how did that progressive mission influence the way you reported this story
4: that's a great question um so you know i i'd say I first became very aware of um, domestic violence in sports leagues after the Ray Rice incident. And that video came up and the way that the league really bungled it. Um, And as an outlet that covers um, violence against women regularly, um, it's hard to see how we couldn't also address it when it comes, you know, when it crosses over into the realm of sports and I'm a big baseball fan, also a Coloradan, um, so when uh, I, I heard that baseball was um, putting together their policy last year and wanted to be more proactive about it and um, was really bringing on some very reputable experts to help them do it, um, that to me seemed, I guess you could say, a progressive way of dealing with this, that it's a, you know it's a comprehensive policy, as I mentioned at the outset. Which is really important that we're not just talking about punishment here, but we're talking about treatment and prevention. And um, to me, that's really the most progressive piece of this.
0: So you talked to top officials with the MLB and its players' union as Mm -hmm. you reported on this policy. Why do they think it's important to punish players on top of any punishment they got from the justice system?
4: So they, as they said to me, they didn't want to be—they didn't want their hands to be tied by the justice system. They wanted to be able to issue punishment, and also prescribe treatment outside of the justice system. And that that's really key because oftentimes with crimes of violence against women, charges are not pressed. I see. Um, in the case of Eraldis Chapman, who is now with the Yankees and um, was just given a 30-game suspension yesterday, yesterday by the right. league. Um, charges were not pressed in that case. And police in Florida who came to the scene said that there was conflicting reports from Chapman and his girlfriend and a driver who was also there at the scene. And it, there wasn't sufficient evidence for them to press charges. And I think that that's an important piece when we're dealing with these crimes is that charges are often not pressed. Um, perpetrators are often not convicted. And that's not to say that something didn't occur. Um, so I think baseball wanted to be able to investigate these allegations on their own. So they have an internal investigation unit that has investigated the three cases that have come up so far this year and then to assess uh, the punishment that they deem sufficient. And they really, you know, as they said to me, they they really want to send the message that they're taking these issues seriously, and they know that they they weren't before, um and they want to correct that and I think another reason why that's so important is, you know, whether we like it or not, athletes hold a a certain elevated position in our society and they're seen as role models. And there are tons, you know, millions of little boys and girls that watch these players. And I think that I, as from the the officials and teams um, that I've talked to, they understand that responsibility and they want to send a clear message that they, they are taking these crimes seriously. Um which you know I think is a is a positive and important step
0: do Do you think that this could be just for for let's say a couple of years until things let's say quote blow over and then things go back to the way they are, or is this an actual change in not just the you know baseball but let's say all sports teams across the country?
4: I want to believe that it's an actual change, but i I think the question you raise is a valuable one, and what I'm gonna be looking for moving forward with baseball is You know, that we aren't just focused on the punishment and particularly the punishment of these first few cases. So it's not just that we, you know, checked a box and we punished someone. And once he finishes his suspension, he can come back and everything will be fine. And look, we've taken domestic violence seriously. Hmm. I think what they continue to do with the education and prevention and awareness piece of this is really important. Um, They have a huge platform, as I mentioned before, but the leagues and teams have have a huge platform and a big opportunity to draw attention to these issues aside from punishing actual players. So for us to see that they are really, as you said, taking this seriously as a long-term culture change, which is another thing they told me that, you know, that they really want to do, and that that will take several years. It will take more than several years. You know, we're talking decades. If we want to shift the entire culture of, violence against women in sports, that's going to take a long time. Um, So I'll really be looking for the continued commitment to educating all players throughout the ranks, um, to raising awareness in the individual communities where these teams are located, um, and to really showing that it's not just about sending a signal with punishments, but that they are really committed to changing the culture.
0: Kylie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Kylie Crow has reported on sports and domestic violence for Think Progress, a progressive news site. She joined us to explain the recent decision to put Rocky shortstop Jose Reyes on leave. He faces domestic abuse charges. Still to come, why diners in Boulder ate in complete darkness on purpose. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Pitch black darkness. That may not sound like an ideal way to eat dinner, but at the Blind Cafe in Boulder last fall, dining in the dark was the backdrop for a social experiment. We sent our producer Stephanie Wolf to check it out.
3: Hey guys, how you doing? Yeah. My name is Rosh. I'm the founder of the Blind Cafe. Really excited to have you guys here. I'm going to make a few announcements so we can get you guys into the dark. A couple ground rules is we ask that you guys don't bring any light into the dark. So that means you need to turn off your cell phones 100%.
0: Rosh's full name is Brian Roshinlow. Our audio equipment did not meet his ground rules. It glows. So Stephanie's recorder had to get covered up with duct tape and heavy fabric. That made for less-than-ideal recording conditions, and you may hear that in the sound quality, especially after she entered the dark room in the cafe.
3: you, need you guys to line up here. It's a big, long line. With your right yeah, hand yeah. The, shoulder the person in front of you.
0: For the waiters that night, this environment wasn't so foreign. They were visually impaired. They confidently led diners to their tables. The Blind Cafe includes dinner, dessert, and live music, all in pitch darkness. It now tours the country, popping up in cities including San Francisco, Austin, and Chicago. This event was at a chapel in Boulder. Here again is Brian Rushenlow.
3: We actually started here, uh, upstairs, in the upstairs chapel, um, five, almost six years ago.
0: He was inspired by a cafe in the dark of Iceland and says the experience was so profound he wanted to bring it to the U.S. The goal is to get people outside their comfort zones, and it did for our producer. She said the first 15 minutes was unnerving. My orientation is all off. Another goal is to help people understand what it's like to have poor or no eyesight. At one point, diners asked the waiters questions, like how they read people when they can't see their faces. Server, Greg Hill.
2: Well, I think we read expression as blind people through, like, the tone of the voice and through, like, a vibe that somebody sends send off, right? So you
1: can sort of tell if somebody's, like, uptight from how they're speaking or a particular, like, feeling you get from them.
0: The evening ended with a performance by Rush and Lowe's band. He urged people to get up and dance. It was too dark to tell who was dancing, but many felt uninhibited enough to sing along. <laughs> and thanks to producer Stephanie Wolf for that look inside the Blind Café last fall. The event returns to Boulder on Thursday. Brian Rushenlow joins us now, so uh, welcome to the program. Hi, good to be here. Uh, you got the idea for the Blind Café after going to a café in the dark in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, describe that experience for me.
3: Um, I was on tour as a songwriter, play guitar and sing, and I was traveling across Europe, and I was in Reykjavik performing concerts uh, all across Europe. Yeah. And I was walking down the street in Reykjavik, Iceland, and there was this uh girl, she had this laminated she had this table in front of her with laminated cards on it in Icelandic words. Okay. And it had braille printed on the on the laminated cards and cool. I was like, "What's this?" And she goes, "Oh, it's a cafe in the dark." I said, "What does that mean?" And she yeah. goes, she goes, "Oh, well, you know, it's all dark in there and the waiters are blind." So I had to pay for whatever I wanted outside in the light. Before you she, went in. Yeah, yeah. And, she, and she gave me a little card with the word coffee on it with the Braille, and I was supposed to give that to the blind waiter when I got inside. So I, she brings she sends me down this long, dark hallway by myself and pushes me in and starts closing the door, and I'm like, well, how do I find my seat? And she goes, the waiter will find you. <laughs> and she gave me this cane. She goes, here, use this. So she closed the door, and I'm in this long, dark hallway, and it's really, really dark. And I start making my way all the way down the hallway, using the cane against the floor, how I've seen blind folks do it before, and I open up another door, and it would turn. It was just completely pitch dark. It was almost like jumping into cold water. That sense of like, <gasps> you know, like a shock. Um, everybody's chatting away in Icelandic. There's dishes clanking everywhere. Um, I literally couldn't see anything. After I had a moment of kind of panic, I thought, okay, I can do this. So I use the cane and I start scraping across the ground, and I go into the room. And I bumped into this table. I could tell that there were people at the table. And I asked them if there's any extra chairs. And they said, we don't know.
0: It's dark. It's <laughs> black. Yeah. Exactly,
3: yeah. So I ended up hanging out in the dark with these folks that um, for a couple hours. And I had no idea if they were tall, black, white, in a wheelchair, or blind. So it was like this amazing opportunity to meet people socially without my visual conditioning. And you know, social etiquette was out the window, too. So if I was trying to eat with a fork... Um, and it wasn't working, I could just forget about it and just start eating with my hands. And if I start to feel self-conscious about it, it doesn't matter. Nobody sees me. So I thought this would be an interesting way to kind of help build community, break down social barriers. Um, and so uh, I went back to the United States. Um, and several years later, after some encouragement with some friends, I made a friend with, uh, who is blind, my friend Rick Heyman. He's our keynote speaker who uh, facilitates the whole uh, Q&A and question and answer forum in the dark.
0: And he was a big catalyst in in launching this this here in Boulder.
3: Absolutely, yeah. So I said to him, I said, "Hey, I want to. I've got this darkness idea. I want to do this event. Um, I would love to do music. I would love to help organize it." And my friend, he's he's a chef. He'd love to do the food. Yeah. And he was like, "Well, why don't we do a Q and A about blindness?" And he's like, "I'll do a poem because he's a spoken word artist as well." So we launched it in 2010 and. It's been almost 14,000 people in the dark now since 2010. And ten. are popping all over the country now.
0: And there are restaurants in California and New York that that have offered dining in the dark. How is this different from uh, those cafes and the one you hadn't recognized?
3: Well, the dining in the dark experiences are just like a regular restaurant experience, except for you're in the dark and you have your own private little table. And your waiter's blind, or sometimes they don't have blind waiters. Sometimes they have infrared goggles. Our event is like an epic experience. Ours is the Blind Cafe Experience. So when you arrive, there's like 100 people waiting to get into the dark. It's almost like being a, a big event. And we kind of cue everybody. We give everybody wine and dark chocolate. You get to meet the puppies. We have puppies. We have guide dog puppies that hang out with us. Okay. And then once we've given you the rules of the game, had your fo- cell phones off, we've talked about how to you know um, participate in the event – Um, we then, my blind friends then lead the guests into the pitch dark room through this darkness tunnel that we create out of fabric. And that leads them from the light related room into the dark. And everybody actually sits down at large tables. So if you came with a friend, you'd be paired up with six other people, an eight person table. And you literally have to break bread together with your community. Um, so there's three components in the dark. You have the, the social experiment and bread breaking. You also have, uh, then we go into a Q and a, so I, use a Tibetan singing bowl, and I teach everybody active listening. And then we have a group conversation about blindness with the blind waitstaff between the Sayyid audience.
0: And they're all legally blind, correct? Yep. Okay. And and you say being in the dark at your events can have a visceral feeling for people. Some people get scared or Mm -hmm. or very uncomfortable, especially like you did that first five or ten minutes when you were in that Icelandic cafe. Why do you think dining and interacting in the dark can can be this visceral?
3: Uh, There's something about the darkness that... Um, interrupts our habitual ways of kind of checking out and not being present. So a lot of times we're thinking about we're gonna, where we're going to be or what we what we did and we're kind of in our heads, we're kind of in the future or the past yeah. or if we start to feel uncomfortable we check our cell phones but in the dark you don't have that. Whatever you're doing whether you're trying to eat with a fork or trying to relate with somebody at the table or participating in a conversation with the blind folks or being part of the music you have to be very acute and in the moment because you suddenly, you don't know how to do everything. You don't know how to walk. You don't have to get, you can't get to the bathroom by yourself. Yeah. You, um, you don't know how to eat with a fork. You try to eat with a fork because there's no food on your, on your fork. And so there's something that kind of, it just interrupts our, our comfort zone and make, puts us in a situation where we don't quite know what to do. And so we have to pay attention more. And then that's the opportunity. That's the window right there to um, help people grow. And do you, open themselves up.
0: Do, do you think this? And, and, and pardon me if it's a bit a bit forward. You know, trivializes blindness. Do you, do, you, do you think that this is the correct outlet to raise awareness for people who may not have have sight?
3: Um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sighted myself. Okay. So, but um, I've been doing this for six years, and I started it with my friend Rick, who is blind. And what we do is we create a really positive, cool environment for people to come into the dark and have a real heart-to-heart discussion with the blind with a with a blind waiters so um you so know, there's it, it, only a few people that come to the event that like really freak out and can't do it most people after you get past that first 10 15 minutes of uncomfortableness you start to open up you start to relax you start to um be entertained in a way and once you once you entertain people and they open up their hearts then there's an opportunity to educate them i see right and so it's entertaining and educate so you create an experience that kind of takes people out of their natural environment and psychological experience and then suddenly they're more open-minded more ready to to receive and then you can we have this whole discussion about blindness and people ask questions in the dark they would never ask in the light
0: and danielle vries of boulder was at the event last fall and she said she noticed how her husband was acting differently how they felt more uninhibited while they were there
4: my husband he's not really into pda or that kind of thing. And I noticed that throughout the night, you know, there was more like hand-holding and stolen kisses and things that, you know, I normally don't experience from him when we go out to dinner in public.
0: And, and you said you've heard similar responses to that before, that that uninhibitedness, that ability to then open up and have these discussion discussions about you know, blindness and... and, and and living in that type of world.
3: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in the, especially in the music. So, you know, in a live concert, everybody's kind of checking their cell phones, or if you feel emotionally moved by a song, you might tear up a tiny bit, but you're going to kind of, you know, be a little straight. And you, you uh, in the dark, you can just bawl your eyes out. You can start singing at the top of your lungs. And we heard that in the you in know, the And before. rather, in a lighted room, you'd be more self-conscious about how other people see you. So it's this magical experience of not being seen. You're in a social setting, but nobody can see you. It's this. It's almost like we all have the same superpower. It's this really uninhibiting experience.
0: There is a a new blind cafe program called Couples in the Dark. Uh, What happens during that event?
3: Um, Well, that's a pilot. We've piloted uh, that program twice now. And we've been doing it in San Francisco. So that's where we partner with a clinical psychologist, a uh, relationship therapist in San Francisco. And in that program so far, instead of having 50 to 70 people in the dark for like a big social dinner experience, Mm -hmm. it's more like uh, six to eight couples and we create these little nests on the floor, but it's all in the dark. You can't see anything. And we give them their picnic baskets and then have flowers in there and they have like wine and mason jars with wine and water. And they have these courses in there and we had them feed each other and we have them pretend that they're picnicking somewhere in the world. Right. And then that's how we reference them. And then that's the first half. We kind of go through this whole sensual eating experience. And then we have a heart-to-heart discussion as a group where everybody shares their wisdom and biggest challenges around relationships and tries to offer things. So it's not like we're a guru and we're like, this is what you should do for a relationship. We actually facilitate a group wisdom experience in
0: the dark. And you're also collaborating with universities, I've heard.
3: Yep. So we're doing Stanford University in April and uh, California State University in April as well. Um, We've had them reach out to come out and do all sorts of programs for them um, around, uh, you know, disabilities awareness and, you know, diversity. Um, there's We're barely touching the surface of what we can do with the Blind Cafe.
0: Yeah. So is it really about opening up your heart and opening up your mind, but but then also uh, raising awareness about, about people who, who have lost their sight or are losing their sight? It's kind of this balance that you're playing. Is that right?
3: Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So okay. the Blind Cafe is not a blind organization necessarily. We're using the darkness to create positive and social experiences, to see how we can open up and learn more about each other without our visual conditioning, our social etiquette, and our cell phones. Because we're just, people are just starving to feel real, connected, intimate um, connection. You know, we go to the coffee shop and everybody's on their computers and everybody's on their phones and everybody's kind of afraid to talk to each other. You know, and it's safe to just have my music on. When I'm in the coffee shop. But here, You're in, for two hours in the dark, you don't have your phone on. That alone is life-changing for people nowadays.
0: Thanks for joining us. Okay. Brian Rushenlow is founder of The Blind Cafe, which returns to Boulder's Wesley Chapel this weekend. And from dining in the dark to dancing... In the Dark. Denver-based Control Group Productions is an experimental performance troupe and explores the idea of dance without visibility. In its latest production, Dances Meant to be Viewed in the Dark. Artistic director Patrick Mueller says he was inspired by CPR's radio dances. The 2014 project challenged Colorado dance companies to envision a traditionally visual art form for the radio. Mueller says he thought about how sound or even touch can create pictures in our heads. Our relationship with darkness is very primal. We are seeing our memories. We're seeing our imagination, what we project into the space around us when we're in the dark. Though this won't be in total darkness, Mueller says the dancers perform in dim lighting and even wear headlamps at times. Also on the bill, a work called Cave by Boulder dancers Lauren Beal and Brooke McNamara. The two dances will be performed simultaneously in adjacent rooms. Performances are Friday and Saturday at the Integral Center in Boulder. You can catch the production in Denver on April 8th and 9th. Find more information at cprnews.org. And that's our show for this Wednesday. Ryan Warner will be back tomorrow. Thanks to Stephanie Wolf, Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, Andrew Dukakis, Sam Brash, and everyone at Colorado Matters. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.